For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Memphis, Tennessee. The first inhabitants were the indigenous tribes who lived along the bluffs of the Mississippi River for more than 10,000 years. Memphis was officially founded in 1819 by Andrew Jackson, 10 years before he became president, General James Winchester, and Judge John Overton, naming the city after the ancient Egyptian city of Memphis, which means enduring and beautiful. It is a young city where the average median age is just over 34. Memphis is famous worldwide for its rich music culture as the birthplace of rock and roll and the home of the blues, jazz, gospel, and many other musical genres. Many of America's biggest music legends launched their careers at Sun Studios. Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, and many others. It is also home to Graceland, the quintessential memorial to Elvis Presley, to which thousands of Elvis fans flock every year. Beale Street is an iconic American street in downtown Memphis built in 1841, and the entire street is designated as a National Historic Landmark. This street is considered to be the birthplace of the blues where many famous artists, including B.B. King, started their careers. Memphians take great pride in the sons and daughters who have found fame for the talents they honed in their great city. But in 2010, the death of an NBA star left residents desperate to know who could have hated their hometown hero enough to kill him. The answer was shocking. Lorenzen Wright was a basketball standout from an early age. He was raised in Oxford, Mississippi by his mother, Deborah Marion, and his grandmother. Even though his parents never married, his father, Herb Wright, was still a big part of his life. Lorenzen inherited his basketball athleticism from his father. Mr. Wright played professional basketball in Finland and was once invited to try out with the Utah Jazz NBA team. After retiring from basketball, Mr. Wright worked for the Memphis Parks Department and coached women's basketball at Shelby State University. Lorenzen was seven years old when, on a hot summer day, Mr. Wright kicked a few mouthy kids out of the gym. One of them returned with a gun and shot Mr. Wright in the back. He was paralyzed. In his junior year of high school, Lorenzen's mother moved the family to Memphis from Oxford to play basketball at Booker T. Washington High School. From there, Lorenzen went to play at the University of Memphis. And of course, as you would expect from a standout athlete, he had his share of female admirers. But he only had eyes for one, Shara Robinson. He met her during his junior year of high school. Her dad was his coach. His friends say they started dating when they first met. Shara was a junior in college at the time. And he was a junior in high school? And he was a junior in high school. Shara got pregnant during Lorenzen's freshman year of college, and in April 1995, Lorenzen Wright Jr. was born. 
In between classes and practice time, Lorenzen would spend as much time as he could with his son. A little over three years later, Lorenzen and Shara got married, and later that year, they welcomed their first daughter, Lauren. Their first two children were followed in quick succession by twin sons, Lamar and Shamar, daughter Sophia, son Lawson, and daughter Sierra. Seven kids. I know. Wow. Tragically, Sierra Simone Wright died when she was 11 months old of sudden infant death syndrome. The Memphis Grizzlies players and staff set up a scholarship fund in memory of Sierra that grants an annual scholarship to a Booker T. Washington high school graduate who attends the University of Memphis. And you know, Kath, I looked it up. Mm -hmm. Almost 20 years later, that scholarship fund is still granting scholarship money to deserving applicants. Oh, that's so cool. I think that's amazing. Lorenzen played at the University of Memphis for two years before declaring for the NBA draft. He was selected by the Los Angeles Clippers, becoming an instant millionaire, and was an absolute force on the basketball court. The Clippers went on to the playoffs in his rookie year in 1997. So his first contract, almost $1.5 million. So he truly became an instant millionaire. After a two-year stint with the Clippers and then two more with the Atlanta Hawks, in 2001, Lorenzen returned home to Memphis to play for the Grizzlies and was hailed as a hometown hero. Lorenzen loved people and children. He was very polite, clearly raised well by his mother and grandmother, and was always known to have a big smile on his face. According to a 2020 episode, Lorenzen was earning big money in the NBA, having earned nearly $15 million by the time he came home to play for Memphis. And at that point, he was earning $7 million a year playing for the Grizzlies. He spread the wealth around, buying homes and cars and paying for friends and relatives to go to college. He also bought shoes for high school teams and underwrote a youth basketball league. His house was the spot to hang out in, which I can imagine with all those kids and their friends coming over and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And you know, it was big and they had lots of game rooms and all the toys. Exactly. He also bought a house for his mom, which was just three minutes away from his own. Those close to Lorenzen said that his family meant everything to him. Ms. Marion, Lorenzen's mom, said that in the first years of playing for the NBA, his marriage to Shara was good. He was making a lot of money, but it was being spent as fast as he was making it. Lorenzen loved cars, and Shara loved jewelry, and that sounds like somebody I know. (laughs) (laughs) That would be Kathy with a C and her husband. (laughs) I understand Shara. I get it. I like jewelry, too. She probably had a higher, you know... Dollar limit? Exactly. (laughs) Higher pain threshold than I do. Well, and I'm guessing, because Kathy's husband loves cars, but I'm guessing Lorenzen's cars were different. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Lorenzen didn't have to buy 20-year-old cars and repaint them himself. Exactly. (laughs) Then came the challenge of Lorenzen's time on the road. He was on the road a lot, and with that came temptation. Every time the plane touched down, women would be there waiting. Lorenzen's close childhood friend, Mike Gibson, said that Lorenzen loved the ladies, and the ladies loved him. According to the 2020 episode I referenced earlier, the problem started when Lorenzen caught Shara with another man. He could not stay married to someone who was cheating on him. Hi, pot, meet kettle. (laughs) (laughs) After that, Lorenzen and Shara grew apart, and he would tell his friends that it was always about money with Shara. In 2009, after playing with the Cleveland Cavaliers, Lorenzen's NBA career ended. 
That was the same year that his wife filed for divorce. What was interesting to me as I was researching this episode Mm -hmm. was that he was making good money. And like you said, he played for the Memphis Grizzlies and was making about $7 million, $7.5 million a year. Mm -hmm. But after five years with the Grizzlies, he then was traded back to the Atlanta Hawks for a year. He then went to the Sacramento Kings for a year. And then he went to the Cleveland Cavaliers. So at that point, three years after making $7.5 million with the Grizzlies, his contract was $1.2 million. Oh, wow. Yeah. So big, big change. Yeah. His overall amount of money that he earned during that time was $55 million. And I know the question on your mind, Kath, and all of our listeners is how much is that in 2022 dollars? Okay. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I was curious about. <laughs> I know you so well. <laughs> um, that was actually in 2022 dollars is about 82 million dollars. That's insane. And that's over the course of his career. Correct. Okay. Which was 13 years. That's incredible. Yeah. Lorenzen told his friends that the marriage ended because he did not trust Shara anymore and she felt the same way about him. But they were still going to work to find a way to raise their kids together. Lorenzen and Shara's divorce was final in February 2010, at which point Lorenzen moved to Atlanta and was living with his friend Mike Gibson. Five months later, on Sunday, July 18, 2010, Lorenzen Wright went missing. That July weekend, Lorenzen had gone back to Memphis, where his daughter Lauren was having a dance recital. He was also supposed to attend his sister's baby shower. And whenever he came back to Memphis, his close friend, Phil Dotson, was always the first person he'd call. Phil and Lorenzen were planning a night out with their sons, but Lorenzen received a call that evening from Shara demanding that she bring her son home. When they got to Shara's house, Lorenzen told Phil that he was going inside to calm her down and then he would call Phil later so they could go out. Do you think he went in and said... You need to calm down. I'm just thinking that if men especially tell you to calm down. Oh, my God. It shoots you through the roof. Exactly. You don't have to focus on those issues. You can now focus on your anger issues. (laughs) Totally. That's so true. Phil said when he called and texted him several times that night, he never got a response. Lorenzen's mother said the next day he was supposed to be going to the baby shower and she kept calling him, but he never answered. So the same night Phil and Lorenzen were supposed to go out, just after midnight, 12.13 a.m. on July 19th, Germantown, a city just east of Memphis, received a 911 call. The police dispatcher heard a caller mumble something but could not make out what it was. Then she heard gunshots. The phone went dead. There was no caller ID and the police dispatcher did not know where the call had come from. Monte Nevels was supposed to be getting married on July 20th in the Bahamas, and Lorenzen was going to be his best man. He received a phone call from a mutual friend telling him Lorenzen was missing. But Monte said that his friends were really not concerned because that was just Lorenzen. He was still living the NBA life. He was hopping on a plane whenever he wanted to, going to Vegas, going to L.A., wherever he wanted to go. And his friend Phil Dotson, the man he was supposed to have been with on July 18th, said that not hearing from him was not out of the norm. When Lorenzen's mother found out he was not even calling his daughter Lauren back, that was too much for her, and she filed a missing persons report four days after he was last seen. The Memphis Police Department started an investigation, and once the missing persons report was publicly known, it became a major news story. Mm -hmm. 
the police began looking at everyone in Lorenzen's inner circle, anyone new in his life, anyone who owed him money, or anyone to whom he owed money. Lorenzen's pastor, Bill Adkins, said that Lorenzen's financial circumstances after basketball were not good. Banks had foreclosed on two of his homes, and he had fallen behind in his $26,000 a month child support checks. $26,000 a month. I can't fathom that. That is insane. Yeah. I'd be, yeah, yeah, living the vida loca. (laughs) Nope, you got six mouths to feed. (laughs) As I mentioned, Lorenzen had made as much as $55 million during his 13 years playing for the NBA, but because he and Shara were continuing to spend like crazy, there actually wasn't even much of it left. So to compensate for that, Lorenzen had side businesses. One of them was his dad ran a sports cafe for him. So this is a cafe that had memorabilia from sports stars, local Memphis folks, and of course, Lorenzen himself. Okay. And he also had a car detailing shop, which also makes sense considering his love for cars. Mm-hmm. According to a 2015 article in the Memphis newspaper Commercial Appeal by journalist Mark Peruskia, one name that would come back to haunt Lorenzen was Bobby Cole. Cole was a race car driver, and Lorenzen loved cars. They met when Lorenzen sold Cole two cars, a Cadillac Escalade and a Mercedes-Benz. But Bobby Cole was also a drug dealer being investigated by the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration. The DEA investigated Lorenzen's connection to Cole years before he disappeared to see if there was some drug connection, but did not find anything. But the drug rumors started swirling again when police interviewed Shara. While investigating Lorenzen's disappearance, Shara was interviewed by detectives. She said six weeks earlier, two individuals came to her home who wanted to hurt Lorenzen. She told them that the night Lorenzen disappeared, she saw him as he left her house and he was carrying a box filled with drugs. Nine days after Lorenzen Wright went missing, Memphis PD pulled his cell phone records and discovered Lorenzen's last call was to 911 in the early morning hours of July 19th. They were able to triangulate cell towers in the area where the call came from, and it was a rural wooded area without a lot of traffic. The street next to this area was Callis Cutoff Road. This was a road that Lorenzen was very familiar with because it was a private road that connected his house with his mother's house. It was a little traveled road that only locals knew about. So, Kathy, in the 2020 episode that I had referenced, uh-huh. one of his friends said, if you didn't know it was there, you didn't know it was there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that describes it perfectly. I think so. <laughs> So the road was paved, but it didn't have any streetlights or houses along the path, so it was always dark and you rarely saw another car. Using cadaver dogs, police found Lorenzen's body almost immediately after beginning a search. After being in the hot Memphis sun for nine days, Lorenzen's body was badly decomposed and would have been unidentifiable except for his 6-foot, 11-inch frame. The 255-pound NBA center was 57 pounds when he was found. Strangely, Lorenzen was still wearing a gold necklace and an expensive watch. Police found shell casings from two different caliber weapons. They could tell that he had been shot at least five times. 
Kath, my understanding is that just looking at the body because of the state of decomposition, they were able to see a lot of bones. And so they could see bullet holes in some of the bones as he was laying there. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Lorenzen's funeral was held August 4th, 2010 at the FedEx Forum, where he used to play basketball for the Grizzlies. Thousands of people came out to mourn the loss of their hometown hero. His fraternity pledge brothers were all pallbearers, and his pastor, Bill Adkins, gave a touching eulogy. The other thing that was so sad to look at, his kids were ages 4 to 15 at this time. Wow. And the pictures of them at the gravesite were just devastating. I can't even imagine. That's These so terrible. kids were just bawling. Yeah. yeah. That's the perfect word. They were wrecked. Yeah. Tony Armstrong, former director of Memphis Police, said that it was going to be difficult because the killers had a nine-day head start and a lot of evidence had been lost due to decomposition. As his ex-wife and the person to last see Lorenzen alive, Shara, of course, had to be looked at. Lorenzen's friends and his mother all suspected her of being involved. However, she denied involvement and hired an attorney. Police were looking for hitmen who may have come into Memphis after Shara told them about the box of drugs Lorenzen had left her house with. She also said he owed people a lot of money. But as months passed without any leads, there was no progress and the case came to a standstill. Ms. Marion, Lorenzen's mom, was relentless in her pursuit of justice for him and said she would keep fighting until her son's killer or killers were held accountable. So I got to tell you, Kath, I obviously don't know her personally, but in seeing her on a number of different things, Mm -hmm. if you ever needed to have somebody in your corner, this is the woman you would want. That's exactly what you were telling me. She is fierce in all the best ways. And really what this fierceness is, is she fiercely loved her son. Right. She was in the police department's face the whole time. Tony Armstrong, when he was director... He said, she went up to him and said, you are going to solve this case for my son. You are going to get detectives on this. You are going to make sure this happens. I love that. And unfortunately, during his tenure, it was not solved. But he said, really, it was her. She talked to them every day. The squeaky wheel gets the grease, man. I swear. It absolutely does. But it was more her personality. Like, honestly, I wish she had an Instagram or Facebook or some way to reach out and talk to her because she's an absolute inspiration. She has... A very thick Southern accent. She talks a mile a minute, which, of course, you know, I love and you love. I mean, that's something I appreciate in everybody. Right. But her love for her family, for her son, shines through. Right. In the 2020 episode entitled Murder in Memphis, Shara's attorney said that after Lorenzen's death, Shara became more involved in the church to which she had already belonged. And she became a pastor in that church. According to an article by John Wertheim in Sports Illustrated, two years later in 2012, there was revived public interest in Lorenzen's murder. As part of his divorce with Shara, Lorenzen was required to take out a $1 million life insurance policy to support their six children. As the executor of Lorenzen's estate, his father, Herb Wright, sued Shara because he thought she was spending the money on herself and not on the children. And since he was already the executor of the estate, he thought he should be the one to oversee his grandchildren's inheritance. According to public records, within 10 months of Shara receiving the $1 million, there was only $5 left. 
Does she know how to spend or what? Apparently, but you know what? It wasn't on the kids. Good Lord. She had reportedly spent 340000 on a foreclosed home that she placed in the children's names. Okay. But an accounting of the funds also revealed that the roughly $660,000 remaining she spent on herself on everything from a $32,000 Escalade to an almost $12,000 trip to New York City. I want to go with her to New York City. Oh, my God. They, sure. They didn't stay in the crappy hotels exactly. I stayed <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but each side was accusing the other of financial mismanagement. You know, it was funny because I looked through the court records. I mean, I couldn't access any of the documents for family law, but you could see what they're entitled and Lorenzen's father, Herb Bright, was in charge generally of the estate. The length of the registry of actions in Shelby County, Tennessee, for this case was ridiculous. There was tons of activity. There was, you know, motions to get rid of her for doing this, motions to get rid of him for doing that. I oh mean, my it was gosh. lots of back and forth with respect to the estate. Now, interestingly... Mm-hmm. Five years after Lorenzen's murder, Shara Wright Robinson, who had remarried by this time, wrote a book called Mr. Tell Me Anything. Really quickly about Shara's last name. Shara's maiden name was Robinson. Mm-hmm. And then she married Lorenzen Wright. Right. But the man she married after her divorce with Lorenzen, uh-huh. his last name was Robinson. <laughs> Shara Robinson, Wright Robinson. Right, and I think that's why she took off the first Robinson, because it's just too confusing. So Shara Robinson Wright. Shara Wright Robinson. I'm sorry, that's what I meant. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So back to the book that she wrote called Mr. Tell Me Anything. It was the story of a woman who had a tumultuous marriage with an NBA player. Mm -hmm. Maybe drawn from her own life. Sounds familiar. Yes, it does. So although it was supposed to be a work of fiction, it read almost like a confession. So Mark Peruskia, the reporter with the Commercial Appeal, interviewed Shara in July 2015 and asked her about the book. Now, Shara said that the book was 99% taken from her marriage. Okay. Which I'm not sure that makes it fiction, but all right. She also said names were changed to protect the innocent. Oh, I'm sure. Uh Um, But in the book, the NBA player is verbally and physically abusive to her. Shara told Mark that the character was based on Lorenzen. She was planning a sequel that was 90% written and said it would take the reader up to Mr. Tell Me Anything's death and a little beyond. When the reporter asked if Mr. Tell Me Anything was murdered, Shara said, yes, of course he was. So the reporter naturally started asking questions about Lorenzen's death. Shara told him she did not know who did it, but wanted police to find the murderers. When the reporter asked her if she had anything to do with his disappearance, Shara replied, I am a wife. I am a mother, I am an author, and the police should find his killer. Hmm. So, in 1998, when President Clinton was going through the impeachment process, I worked for a congressman from California. Mm -hmm. And I was his communications director. And the group of communications directors on the House of Representatives side, Mm -hmm. we were invited to meet with Sam Donaldson. That's cool. People might not know who he is now, but for a very long time, was a veteran ABC correspondent, covered the White House. Mm -hmm. And of course, because he covered the White House, was all over this Clinton thing. So the day that he came to talk to us, he actually had to cut it short because there was news that President Clinton was going to hold a press conference. Okay. One of my colleagues in the room said, what question are you going to ask him? Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to ask him if he's guilty. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And he said, but this is what you need to listen for. Does he say no? If the question is asked and he says anything other than no, you know he's guilty. Wow. And so when I was reading this, I had the same exact thought. You did not answer the question. You didn't lie, but you also didn't say no. Yeah. Is that the press conference where he said, I did not have sex with that woman? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Kathy sometimes does work as a Clinton impersonator. (laughs) Exactly. I'm not well paid for it, obviously. It's a side hustle. (laughs) Shara became romantically involved with a professional journalist named Kelvin Cowens. He told reporters that Shara convinced him that she had nothing to do with Lorenzen's murder, and he believed her. Shara and Kelvin soon moved from Memphis to Houston, Texas, because Shara was tired of all the attention and negative publicity she was receiving. Their relationship ended a few years later. Kelvin said he could not quite get used to Shara's love for money. And he was concerned that Shara kept saying she wanted more money from Lorenzen's estate than just the life insurance money. Her greed is what he said made him want to get out. Hmm. In 2017, when the relationship ended, Shara and the kids moved to Marietta, California, which is in Southern California, just north of San Diego, Mm -hmm. to be closer to her brother. And the thing about having like insatiable taste, unless you have unlimited resources in perpetuity, then... You can never sustain it. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, my husband and I decide to live modestly. (laughs) Oh, is that why you do it? (laughs) That's why. (laughs) So we're never disappointed. Oh, that's good. (laughs) And the kids never expect too much or stay at home. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Around this time, Memphis police were taking a new look at Lorenzen's murder, calling it Operation Rebound. Oh, if we had a, uh, what is it called? A, um, I wish I could. Oh, if we could oh, do yeah, a rim but shot. Yeah, exactly. But I'm I wish. <laughs> I wish I were a fly on a wall where where the where the guys like, hey, what should we call this? <laughs> Let's call it Operation Basketball Star. No, no, that's too Operation obvious. Operation Layup. Yeah, exactly. No, layups are so soft. Oh, Operation Rebound. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I just, bet you there wasn't a single woman in that room. Yeah, you, she would be like rolling her eyes that's and what I mean. slapping her head exactly. like, what the heck? Who anyway, are these little boys and what am I doing here? It does crack me up when they come up with these names. I know. So they wanted to go through the evidence one more time to see if there was anything at all that they missed. Lorenzen's friend, Phil Dotson, said he received a call from police saying they wanted to talk to him again and thoroughly go over all of the stories again. Which makes sense because it's, what, seven years later now? Oh, yeah. And if you lied the first time, you're not going to remember that lie now. That's very true. (laughs) By now, Tony Armstrong, the former director of Memphis Police Department, had left the department but was still following the case closely. When he heard about Operation Rebound, he said the first thought was that someone had done something to get their attention. Sure enough, a few months later in November 2017, Memphis police announced they found the murder weapon in a lake in Walnut, Mississippi, which is about an hour away from Memphis. How did they find the gun? Well... Jimmy Martin was a former rap artist, and in 2017, he was convicted of second-degree murder of his girlfriend. After he was convicted, but before he was sentenced, he approached Memphis police and said he had information about Lorenzen's murder. And this is what he told them. Jimmy Martin also happened to be Shara's cousin. Martin told police that Shara was involved in Lorenzen's murder with a man named Billy Ray Turner. Turner was her gardener, landscaper, grass cutter, kind mm-hmm. of depending on who you talk to, right. and a deacon in the church that Shara attended. According to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations, Turner was no stranger to the police, having been arrested and convicted of violent crimes dating back to the early 1990s. In 1992, he was arrested for aggravated assault and aggravated kidnapping. The same year, he was arrested for selling cocaine and sentenced to four years in prison. After he was out of prison, he was again arrested, this time for criminal trespass. Martin told police that he had once gone to Atlanta with Turner to try and kill Lorenzen. Police were able to verify that Shara had also been in Atlanta around this time. Remember, Lorenzen was living in Atlanta with his friend Mike Gibson. Okay. It turns out it was a one-bedroom townhome. Okay. But, of course, Shara and Lorenzen did not part on good terms, and she had six children to look after, She'd never been to the townhouse. Okay. But one day she called and said, hi, I'm in Atlanta. I want to come see the place. So his roommate, Mike, thought it was really weird that she wanted to just come and take a tour of the house. That is weird. 
But according to Jimmy Martin, the reason she was there is that she was trying to set the stage for the murder that was going to happen. She unlocked a window that would make it easy for Martin and Turner to access the townhouse. And then she left, went back to Memphis. Interesting. Now, like I said, it was a one-bedroom townhouse. When Lorenzo was in town, his roommate Mike Gibson slept on the couch. Jimmy Martin said that they had actually opened the window and gone in the house. He and Turner had opened the window and gone in the house. And they went to Lorenzen's room and he wasn't there. So they were sneaking around trying to find where he might be. And they said they saw someone, they didn't know who it was, sleeping on the couch. And they freaked out and left. Wow. So nothing happened. He also said that Shara was super pissed that nothing had happened, that they hadn't completed the murder. It turns out Lorenzen just hadn't come home that night. Dang, lucky for him. Yeah, no kidding, huh? So a new plot to kill Lorenzen was planned. And this one was successful. A few days after Lorenzen's death, Martin told police that Shara and Turner confessed to him that they had killed Lorenzen, and he helped them clean up the crime scene. They even used a metal detector to find a gun that Shara had accidentally dropped. What? I know. I know. (laughs) I know. Oops. Oops. Yeah. Okay. Like, did it fall out of your pocket? I mean... <laughs> Did you trip? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, hmm. Anyway, Martin said that he and Turner then drove to Walnut, Mississippi, where Turner threw the gun into a lake. After recovering the gun from where Martin said it would be, police were able to do forensics, and they determined that the shell casings found at the crime scene were consistent with the gun in the lake. The police announced they had the gun to see what Shara and Turner would do and then began monitoring their cell phones. They were also able to record those calls and heard significant damaging evidence. On December 7, 2017, Billy Ray Turner was arrested for first-degree murder and entered a not-guilty plea. At Turner's arraignment, Ms. Marianne jumped up in court and yelled, How could you have murdered my son? Judge Lee Coffey warned her that her outburst was not helping her son, not helping them achieve justice, and if she did it again, he would have to bar her from the courtroom, which he did not want to do. By the way, Kath, you know, some of this, obviously, like we saw on YouTube, I loved this judge. Right. He was so... um, Firmly compassionate. Yes. I really, really liked this guy. He was firm and he was an excellent model for the jury. Which then I'm sure sets the stage. Oh, totally. Like if a judge is a jerk, the juries treat the attorneys like they're jerks. If the judge handles the jurors well, they tend to be more patient with the lawyers. That makes sense. Yeah. They're taking their lead from him. Totally makes sense. Yeah, totally. Ten days after Billy Ray Turner's arrest... Shara Wright Robinson was arrested in California and indicted for conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, criminal attempted first-degree murder, and first-degree murder in the death of Lorenzen Wright. Shara also pleaded not guilty. Here's what's funny, Hmm. if there's something funny in this situation. So they extradited her back to Tennessee. She was being held in one of their jails, and sheriff's deputies sent a report to the judge that she was kind of devolving in the jailhouse. Okay. She would strip her clothes off. Oh. She flooded her toilet and announced to everybody she was going swimming. Oh, my God. (laughs) And she was berating the jail staff. Oh. Sitting before the judge the next day, Mm -hmm. after he'd received this report, 
The judge said that her behavior the day before was absolutely shocking and then sent a $20 million bond. Wow. Yes. Lorenzen's friends believed that these were all acts she was putting on so that it would help her be able to convince authorities that she was mentally unstable and then have an insanity plea. Wow. But that's a commitment, stripping down naked. Yes. <laughs> that's a commitment to insanity. I agree with that, too. <laughs> I'm okay. You can think I'm saying like, not no, doing thanks. It. I'll take the 50 years. Exactly. <laughs> Billy Ray Turner's lawyer, John Keith Perry, was one of Memphis's most high-profile criminal defense attorneys. According to Perry, Turner always said he never had anything to do with the murder of Lorenzen. Perry had questions about his actual connections to Shara. There were some rumors and some insinuations that Shara and Turner had been romantically involved. Mm -hmm. And Perry said that they needed to consider the source, Jimmy Martin. He could be the one who actually killed Lorenzen because, after all, he was a convicted murderer. Right. And he was likely looking to get a reduced sentence on the murder conviction for providing police with the information about Lorenzen's murder. Right. I mean, that's why he went to them, right? Exactly. He, like he was convicted of killing his girlfriend. And so now it's time to like, let's see let's what kind of deal. sentencing deal I could get. Exactly. Right. Now, originally, Shara and Billy Ray Turner were being prosecuted together as co-defendants. In the seven months they appeared in court together, it appeared that there was always a question of who would turn on whom. And mm -hmm. it became evident to Shara's attorneys that prosecutors wanted to work out a deal with Turner. Mm. The reason it became evident to them mm -hmm. is that when Turner was arrested in 2017 for the murder, he was found with two guns. Now, remember, he'd been arrested quite a bit before this. Right. And he was a felon and felons are not allowed to possess handguns. That is a no-no. Right. So <laughs> I think that's what it says in the law. Exactly. That was a direct quote from a statute. <laughs> so in addition to the charges for Lorenzen's death, he was also arrested for being a felon in possession of a handgun. So now he has two trials. He has the appearance for the three murders, and then he has a separate appearance for the handgun charge. And what there was like a, a distinct punishment for the handgun charge, uh, a certain number of years. It like, was up to 20 years in prison for the felon in possession of a handgun. Like just exactly, just yeah. on that one charge just alone. Just on the one charge alone. Okay. So, of course, he's debating, what do I do? Do I right. take a chance? Because if he decided to plead guilty, he wouldn't know what sentence he was getting. It was Judge Coffey who was presiding over this trial as well. Right. And so the sentence would be determined at a later date. Right. So he decided to roll the dice and say, OK, you know what? I'm going to plead guilty to this. Plead guilty to the gun charges. Correct. And take my chances with the judge. Now, Shara's attorneys were watching this very closely. And when the judge said he was postponing sentencing, they said he's working out a deal. Yeah. They knew he was going to flip. So they immediately went to Shara and told her she needed to consider a plea deal and get there first. So on June 19th, 2019, during an unscheduled appearance before the judge, Shara pleaded guilty to facilitation of first-degree murder and facilitation of attempted first-degree murder. Essentially, the plea agreement allowed her to plead guilty to the lesser crimes of plotting the murder, but not actually pleading guilty to the murder itself. She did not name Turner or any other accomplices in her plea agreement. Six days later, she was sentenced to 30 years in prison, of which she would have to serve 30% or nine years before being eligible for parole. So she had already spent some time in jail at this about point. a year and a half. So she had about seven and a half mandatory years in front of her. And that was almost three years ago. Yeah. Anyway. So she has about four years left before yes. she's up for parole. 
Lorenzen's mother, Ms. Marion, spoke in court, and instead of anger and outrage, she gave Shara her compassion and thanked her for giving her grandchildren. She also asked Shara to allow her to see them and talk to them. At this point, Ms. Marion said, I just hate what happened to my child, but he left nice looking grandkids here for grandma, <laughs> which is so cute. <laughs> And you know, it's funny because I saw a video of this, like Mm -hmm. of her talking. And when she is saying this to Shara, she's not on the witness stand. She's just standing up in court looking at her and Shara is looking back at her. And then Shara asked if she could respond. And the judge basically said something like, ask your attorneys or whatever. And then her attorney said, oh, she declines to comment. So she was not allowed to speak back to Lorenzen's mom. I would have been interested to hear if it was something positive or something negative. Oh, I'm sure it was negative. But, you know, it's also interesting. So Phil Dotson, the close friend who Lorenzen was supposed to have been with on the night that he disappeared. Right. In this 2020 episode, he had said all of Lorenzen's friends, they were together. They were like, oh, man, you know, Ms. His Marian, mom gets to speak. Yeah. yeah. She's going to just nail her. She's going to blast her out of the out of the courtroom with you know, like how she's going to hit her. Yeah. And he said, but the minute she started showing the compassion, which is all she did, they all sat back and said, you know what? Yeah, that's her. This wow. is exactly what yeah. she did. And this is the first time she is addressing someone who is actually convicted for something related to her son's murder. Right. It wasn't a murder conviction, but she exhibited a lot of dignity for a woman who had to fight so tenaciously. And so the first thing out of her mouth when she's finally able to address somebody surrounding his her son's murder, she was extremely gracious. Billy Ray Turner's trial was scheduled to start in September 2019, but was delayed to give his attorney time to look over new evidence. It was rescheduled to start in October 2020, but COVID. COVID, exactly. Turner's trial finally began on Monday, March 14th, 2022. So just a couple of weeks ago from today. With Shelby County Criminal Court Judge Lee Coffey presiding. A 15-person jury was selected, 12 jurors with three alternates, that was comprised of eight women and seven men. Jurors would be sequestered for the duration of the trial, which was expected to last up to two weeks. According to Jeremy Pierre with Fox 13 in Memphis, the prosecution opened with Shelby County Assistant District Attorney Paul Hagerman playing the 911 call made from Lorenzen Wright's cell phone before he was killed. Jordan Hill 911, where is your emergency? Hello? 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 I have nothing but gunshots. Hello? Hello? ADA Hagerman said to the jury, this is what it sounds like to kill a man. Hagerman told the jury that Billy Ray Turner, Shara Wright, and Jimmy Martin were all in Shara's kitchen together working up a plan to kill Lorenzen. Billy Ray Turner's defense attorney, John Perry, told the jury how he planned to prove Shara Wright and Jimmy Martin were responsible for Lorenzen's death. He said the messages between Jimmy and Shara will prove Billy Turner's innocence. Lorenzen's mother, Ms. Marion, was the first witness to take the stand. She fought to hold back tears after seeing a picture of her son's decomposing body where detectives found him in 2010 
and testified about the details of the last time she saw her son alive. Obviously, this is to set the tone for sympathy. Absolutely. Yeah. Then Claudia Robinson, who is Shara's cousin but also acted as her nanny, was called to the stand. Claudia testified that she heard Shara talking to Martin and Turner about Lorenzen putting out a hit on her. And Shara said that since Lorenzen put out a hit on her, it was either him or me. And so she wanted him killed. That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Could you hear the sarcasm? Exactly. Claudia testified she did not believe that Lorenzen ever had a hit on his ex-wife, but also never reported the conversations to the police, saying she was afraid for her life and that of her unborn child. When asked by the defense if Claudia ever heard Turner taking part in these conversations, she said no, she never did. He was just present. I understand being scared, though, because if you're talking to somebody who you hear is going to take out a hit on somebody else... If they could do kind it of all, a big deal. Well, yeah, if they could do it for one person, why wouldn't they do it to you? Right. Like if she could do this to her children's father. Right. Memphis police detective Jesse Browning also testified. He is an investigator with the Shelby County Multi-Agency Gang Unit and was one of the first officers to take the missing persons report and testified that Lorenzen's mother was the only one to make a report. Sharon never did. Detective Browning was also questioned about the wiretap on Shara's phone in 2017 after police announced they found the murder weapon. Detective Browning testified that Shara acted distressed when she heard the gun had been found and immediately flew to Memphis. While in Memphis, Browning said Shara used a third party to communicate by text message with Turner and became even more distressed after she learned Turner had been arrested. The detective testified Turner, Shara, and Martin participated in phone calls to each other in the days leading up to Lorenzen's murder. Thirteen pages of text messages and three pages of Facebook messages between Shara and Turner and Shara and her cousin Jimmy Martin were entered into evidence. Memphis Police Sergeant Dennis Evans Jr., who is certified in dealing with cell phone records and related police surveillance, was called to testify about the communication between Turner, Shara, and Martin. Investigators collected one month of phone records just prior to and after Lorenzen's murder, so Sergeant Evans broke down the incoming and outgoing calls between the three people and used maps to show where the calls were made from on the night of the murder. Basically, Sergeant Evans was able to show the jury that Lorenzen's and Turner's cell phones were in the same geographic area on the night of the murder. Sergeant Evans also testified that Shara did a lot of searching on the Internet after police found the murder weapon in 2017. Now, these searches were from her phone, and they included things like, how long are fingerprints on a gun in the water? And she wanted to know if fingerprints can last seven years on an item. She also made repeated searches for news about Turner's arrest and indictment. Jimmy Martin, who again is Shara's cousin, testified about two meetings at Shara's home involving Turner leading up to Lorenzen's murder. The first occurred in May 2010 and was the first time Shara brought up a plot to kill Lorenzen. The second meeting also took place in Shara's home where they discussed tools needed to commit the murder and discussed whether or not they needed to use two or three guns. The most shocking part of Martin's testimony 
was when he explained never before heard details about Lorenzen's last moments alive. On the stand, Martin identified Turner and Shara as the gunmen in Lorenzen's murder. Martin testified that he was in Batesville, Mississippi on that night, but two days later, Shara called him and drove to Batesville to pick him up. During that drive back to Memphis, Martin said Shara told him everything, saying it was done, that the plan to murder Lorenzen had gone through. Martin testified that Shara told him that she lured Lorenzen to a secluded area on an abandoned rural road and ambushed him with the help of Turner. Shara told Martin that Lorenzen tried to get away when he realized he was in danger, telling the jury that Turner and Shara chased Lorenzen down before killing him. Lorenzen had his back to them, and they started chasing him and firing at him. He jumped through a fence, but Shara and Martin caught Lorenzen when he fell. Other pieces of evidence were thrown in a dumpster away from the murder scene, and Martin helped dispose of rags, bolt cutters, and two other guns. Martin told the court that he did not go to the police because he was already in legal trouble, and he thought talking to detectives would have only gotten him into more trouble. Now, Kath, we've talked about hearsay in prior episodes where you can't repeat something somebody else tells you. Everything you're testifying about has to be firsthand knowledge. Right. However, there's an exception to the hearsay rule, which is an admission by a party defendant. And so anything Shara or Turner said to anybody regarding Lorenzen's murder would be admissible in court under that hearsay exception. Defense attorney John Perry cross-examined Martin and tried to show the jury he was untrustworthy. I'm sure he brought up his prior convictions, the fact that he murdered his girlfriend, the fact that sentencing was pending and all that kind of stuff. So he was trying to show the jury that this guy was not a reliable character. And had something to gain for lying. Correct. He was also pointing out some inconsistencies in Martin's testimony. So some of the stuff that came out during trial had never been part of the statements that he gave to the police. And so there are certain things he pointed out, like one of the things he originally told the police was that during the first murder attempt, when Lorenzen was living with his buddy, um, what's his name? Mike Gibson. Yeah. So for the first murder attempt, Martin told the police that he stayed outside. And so he takes the stand and says that he and Turner went into the townhouse. That's pretty significant. That's very significant. You don't forget that and then remember years later. Exactly. Exactly. The defense also pointed out that Martin had made previous statements saying that Turner was the only one who did the shooting and had used two guns. The defense attorney is pointing out that Martin originally put everything on Turner in an attempt, obviously, to protect his cousin. Right. But then now he takes the stand and says Turner and Shara both. Because Shara has pled guilty to facilitation, and so therefore he doesn't need to protect her anymore. Right. So Shara, by the way, did not testify at all. She did not testify for the prosecution. So that must not have been part of her plea deal. And of course, not being part of the plea deal, they couldn't bring her to the stand because I'm sure she was a wild card. Oh, I bet. Yeah. She might have wanted to go swimming again. Yeah, she might have pointed the (laughs) finger at Martin. (laughs) She might have wanted to go swimming again. (laughs) I just heard that. (laughs) Jennifer Bogan was a family friend and church member of Turner's and was the only witness called by the defense. She testified about Turner's whereabouts on the day and night of July 18, 2010. Ms. Bogan told the court that Turner was at her home for a cookout and that he left around 10 p.m. that night. On cross-examination, 
ADA Hagerman had asked, did she know where he was after he left her home that night? And she said no, she did not know. Right. In his closing arguments, defense attorney John Perry implied that it was Martin who was Shara's partner in the crime, not Turner. No witness testimony was given that Turner agreed to participate, only the word of Martin. Now, referring to the witness who had been called for the defense, Perry asked the question, do you really think someone who was with their church group eating cake and ice cream would just a few hours later kill someone? At this point, the defense asked for an acquittal, which Judge Coffey denied. This was not the first time they made that motion. And they basically said, hey, not enough evidence. Right. There's not enough evidence. You got to let them go. Blah, blah, blah. And Judge Coffey said, blah, blah, blah. No, exactly. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. Or or is it no, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) During jury instructions, the judge told jurors that in order to find Billy Ray Turner guilty of conspiracy and murder, They had to have independent corroborating evidence other than just the statements of Jimmy Martin, the accomplice. Just last week, on March 21st, 2022, after over a little more than two hours of deliberation, the jury returned guilty verdicts against Billy Ray Turner for first-degree murder, attempted first-degree murder, and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. His murder conviction carries an automatic life sentence, of which Turner must serve at least 85 percent or 51 years. Well, he was 51 when he was convicted last week. So that's a life sentence. It's a life sentence. A real life sentence. Exactly. Lorenzen's mother, Ms. Marion, spoke after the verdict, saying she was elated. Her first thought after she heard the guilty verdict was, thank you, Jesus. He can suffer like I have been suffering for the last 12 years. There will never be closure because she will never see her son again, but rather just some satisfaction for her and her family that they got him and that she was glad Turner was not free anymore. Going forward, Miss Marion is focused on connecting with her grandchildren, calling them the greatest gift her son could have ever given her. And apparently they're all really good looking. (laughs) (laughs) He would be so proud of them. She said Lorenzen's children are what kept her going through all of this, and sadly only one of them, Shamar, who is one of the twins, has been talking to her through all of this. Now that the truth is out and people are in jail for their roles in Lorenzen's murder, she is hopeful that the line of communication with all of her grandchildren will be open again. While in the pursuit of justice, Ms. Marion summarized her love for her oldest child in a single sentence. Lorenzen Wright was one of the best human beings that ever drew breath on this earth. Thank you for listening. If you liked us, I really hope you liked us. Just recommend (laughs) us to a friend. (laughs) And follow us on our social media at Killer Destinations Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.